You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. All right, I am here. Aaron is here. This show is presented by Window Nation. If you're in the market for windows, call 866-90-NATION or go to windownation.com and tell them we told you to call. What a hailstorm yesterday. Did you have the hail? Oh, yeah. I've never seen in all of my years living in my hometown, I don't think I've ever seen that much hail over a, a duration of maybe 30 minutes it hailed. At my house. Oh, I didn't get the hail for that long. We got hail for about five to ten oh, minutes. Oh, no. We had two two to three waves of it come through. And the first wave was the most significant. That was the one, and I saw pictures of it on Capital Weather Gang. They were tweeting them out. But there were a few hail stones near golf ball size. Most of it was in the pea size range. But a healthy, you know, pea-sized. You know, probably twice the size of a pea. Yeah, we got we got probably marble-sized, I'd say. marble size is, is probably a better description. But the, the initial wave of it, there were a couple of big old chunks that fell out of the sky. And I was, you know, you hear it pounding your roof, and I'm watching it pounding our cars. And, you know, I you read about, you know, certainly in the Midwest when they have these baseball-sized hailstorms that break glass and, you know, really mess up cars. I don't think we got close to that, but I cannot remember hail for that long of a duration um, living here. I, I, I don't remember it, and I think the Capital Weather Gang um, had a lot of uh, discussion about it that, that, that this may have been unprecedented in terms of how much hail we had over over the period of time that we had it. But it was pretty cool to watch, actually. It was really cool to watch. And by the way, it ushered in an absolutely spectacular weather pattern here for the next few days. It's gorgeous out there today. I mean, no humidity on June 3rd. Um, To all of you um, who heard the discussion about Peloton the other day, thank you for the suggestions. Um, They are much appreciated. Uh, I am... I'm definitely an Emma fan uh, more than any other, um, but you guys gave me some great suggestions. We've got a a Redskins rapid fire, 10 minutes with three different reporters on the beat coming up. Tark El-Bashir, John Kime, and Michael Phillips will join us. And I'll just go through um, a few things with them. Uh, not keep them uh, either one, any one of the three for a long duration, but you know, 10, 12 minutes uh, with each on you know the super early word on a couple of things like Haskins, like Sweat, like Keenum, um, and a few other things. Um, I'm going to get to NBA Finals Game 2 coming up here shortly. A good weekend for the Nationals and a hell of an outing from Scherzer yesterday. 15 strikeouts. And an exchange with Dave Martinez in the 8th that Martinez said included some non-professional words is the way... He described it. Here's the situation if you weren't watching. Um, In the eighth, Scherzer gave up a a leadoff double um, and then retired uh, two straight batters. So there were two outs, and he was facing Joey Votto. Um, He was coming to the plate, and Martinez walked to the mound, uh, getting ready to pull Scherzer at that point. And Scherzer just shook his head and just said, I don't want to hear it from you. I'm staying in. Um, He'd thrown a lot of pitches at that point. Um, and he felt good. Like he, Scherzer said, I knew I was strong. I still had my arm strength. I knew I wanted to stay in. And it's funny over the years when 
there have been some big games, some postseason games, and Scherzer's been yanked after six, let's just say, and they've gone to the bullpen and it hasn't worked out. I've always said to Tommy, why? Why? And Tommy will say, well, you don't know what Scherzer told the manager. Sometimes the manager will cover for the player, but sometimes the player knows he's got nothing left. Well, Scherzer, who was pulled after six in his last outing, and they uh, had their uh, bullpen roughed up, said yesterday, I knew I was strong, I still had my arm strength, and I knew I wanted to stay in, and he struck out Votto on three straight called strikes. Um, And in that particular moment, that was his 15th strikeout, the most for him since a year ago, and the Nats won the game 4-1. to To take now their third straight series, Aaron, Miami, then they swept Atlanta, and they got two of three in Cincinnati. They've won seven of nine, and they are eight games out with still, if you're curious, 103 games left in the season. You know, we're we're still 23, 22 games away from the halfway point. Um, so things are looking better for them right now. Uh, it certainly helps when you've got Max Scherzer in there uh, throwing uh, eight innings of three-hit, one-run ball with 15 strikeouts. That'll help. Bull- bullpen can't have the highest support ERA of any pitcher in baseball if you don't go to the bullpen at That's all. That's right. That's right. Rendon, a uh, big day yesterday. Um, same for Dozier and Suzuki. Um, so the Nats are on a bit of a roll with the White Sox coming to town. They play four against the White Sox, two here, two there over the next week or so. Um, when's the last time they had the White Sox on the schedule? It's been a while. I've, yeah. I was looking back. I was just Googling. I couldn't find it. And I'm, I know it's obviously happened at some point, yeah. but uh, it doesn't pop up immediately when you just Google it. All right, so good weekend for the Nats. They've got a little bit of momentum um, going. And then there there was this from over the weekend. Um, right when I read it, I just made a note in my phone you know, uh, for Sunday night to remind me as I got prepared for the show today because I didn't want to forget this. Rob Ryan, um, who was a guest on the Redskins Talk, J.P. Finley and Company's podcast, um, NBC Sports Washington, you can find it. And you can find it wherever you see a podcast or wherever you get a podcast, same way you get mine um, as well. But Rob Ryan was a guest. And like Landon Collins a few weeks ago, Landon Collins also new to the team. Landon, if you missed it, and I mentioned it here once or five times, um, Landon predicted Super Bowls plural in Washington a few weeks ago. Well, Rob Ryan, the Redskins' new linebackers coach, we knew he was going to be um, you know, an interesting and entertaining coach. Um, Rob Ryan on this podcast predicted that the Redskins would be a top five defense. Um, the quote exactly is, I knew, quote, I knew this was a top five defense going in, closed quote. Uh, once again, for whatever reason, it just can always continues. This is their, their mode. This is the time of year where you get the, you know, the big promises, the big boasting, the big predictions about how great they're going to be and how much ass they're going to kick. Um, it's, it's, it's so typical. Um, it's so part of this organization's fabric that it's, it doesn't surprise anymore. Like it's not even that big of a deal that Rob Ryan essentially said, we've got a top five defense going in or Landon Collins predicted two Super Bowls because I'm sure the rest of the league, first of all, they don't pay attention to the Redskins, but the people inside the league just go, there they go again, there they go again. You know, this is the stuff that falls into the other category in terms of why the Redskin fan base 
has been whittled down so significantly in recent years, um, you know, over a long period of time, but, you know, even more so in recent years. The losing, obviously, is first and foremost. I mean, you know, one postseason win during the Snyder era, I mean, you can count two if you want to go back to his first year, which wasn't really his team. Um, but the losing is the primary re- reason, obviously. I mean, they could they could be arrogant and they could be dumb and they could, you know, they they could talk and overpromise and under under deliver over and over again. Um, if occasionally they had a decent season, you know, occasionally they won eleven games and won two playoff games and got to an NFC Championship game. But it's not, you know, what's happened here. The losing is is the primary reason why the fan base has eroded. But the other category is behavior, the way they behave. Um, this is what, and I know it, it doesn't bother all of you, but I promise you it bothers a lot of us. This is the part that has really been in recent years more than perhaps the first 10 of the Snyder era. This is the part that's been really off-putting to me um, as a lifelong fan, you know, arrogance is, is not the right disposition for a franchise that doesn't produce any results. You know, that's the kind, I mean, we just think of people or companies or groups that don't produce, but walk around like they have produced something. There's nothing more off-putting than that. Nothing. You know, and I always talk about over-promising and under-delivering. That's what they've been consistently. And when you do that, it will erode a customer base. Sometimes it takes longer when the loyalty of that customer base to the product is so entrenched, which it has been with this particular product, but eventually it's going to erode. You can't constantly tell your customer base how great you're going to be and come up so short of what you claim or claimed you would be. You know, you just can't. Like if you've got, you know, if you've got a landscaper, all right, who tells you that he's coming once a week to cut your grass, to edge, to mulch when needed, to seed when needed. And instead of showing up once a week, they show up once every 10 to 12 days and you know, on that 8th, ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th day before they get there, the grass is two feet high and your home looks really unkept. But he keeps telling you, hey, that next cut's going to be the best ever. And he shows up late again. You're, you're going you're gonna to get rid of him. You're going to find somebody new. You're going to move on. Dan Snyder, if you want to start becoming a good owner, there's one place you could start right today. After the Rob Ryan quote from last week and the Landon Collins quotes from the last couple of weeks, you pull that red-faced team president of yours and that head head coach of yours into a room and you let them know that the next player or coach who runs his mouth about how great your team is is going to be fined $50,000, period. It's not going to be tolerated anymore. And he should look at Bruce and Jay and and Doug, and Eric, and say, you guys have cost me millions with the losing, and now you're going to continue to let your guys run their traps, turning even more of what's left of our customer base away. Just shut the fuck up. Stop. And oh, by the way, Bruce, we're not close to anything. 
And when you said we were, we were four games out of the playoffs two years ago when you said we were one game out. I went and checked the standings. Enough. Show me. Don't tell me anymore. And then he should storm out of the room, and on the way out, on the way out, he should say, by the way, make my quarterback great. No excuses. Apparently, that's one of his lines. No excuses. Um, on the flip side of all of that, which, you know, again, it doesn't even rise to the level of headline worthy anymore because it's so typical. Like the the league, reporters that cover the league, local, national, there go the Redskins again. There, you know, I mean, you expect it from Rob Ryan. I didn't know that I expected Landon Collins to be so transfixed on his former team and the mistakes they made and his current team and how great they're going to be. I thought he was definitely more low-key, Bama, John, Al- John Allen, Alabama, John Allen guy, like a legit winner. Like John Allen over the weekend, and this was great because I read this, and I was like, this is the dude that should be the voice of the locker room. John Allen, in an interview also on NBC Sports Washington, uh, you know, was talked was asked about you know the new additions to the defense and the promise of the defense, and you know, how much he believes in this defense may have been, this could have been off of the top five prediction from Rob Ryan that he's got a top five defense. And John Allen said, quote, well, I've felt that way the last three years, but we haven't done it. You can have all the pieces you want, but if you're not consistent and everybody doesn't do their job, it doesn't matter. We have a bunch of pieces, but pieces don't win games. Close quote. This dude from day one, Day one. Oh, here's one other quote. Every year you have to start all over. Right now, we're just trying to stack the blocks, get ready for training camp. Close quote. God, they need more John Allens as players, of course. But in terms of the way he handles himself. Well, he comes from a winner. You know, he's playing for a loser, but he comes from a big-time winner. So he's got a little bit of experience. Listen to him. Follow him. He should be the example. He's got the right approach. Shut up and play. And produce the results. And when you produce the results, act like you haven't even produced anything yet. That you haven't gotten anywhere near where you want to be. Unbelievable to me, this franchise. It's the owner's fault. You know, he's got a bunch of dummies. And he has not reined it in over the years. He has thought, I am sure of this, he has thought that all of the big talking over the years was helping him sell tickets in the offseason. It's not. It's running people further away from his team because it's laughable. They have not produced anything, but they keep running their mouths. Stop. Enough. Um... On game two last night in the NBA Finals, uh, there was a lot to this game. A lot to it. Um, I'm not about to, by the way, on this game, call it one of the guttiest championship performances of all time. I, I didn't feel that way watching it. You know, I was watching all of the post game with Scott and with Legler and with Doris and with Jalen and with 
Paul Pierce and all of the guests last night. I was staying up watching all the post game, and I thought it was a really good performance by them, given that they lost Looney and then they lost Clay Thompson, and you know it was a next man up situation. And guys like Quinn Cook really performed; he was outstanding last night. And I mentioned to I think it was Legler last week when Legler was on with us. That there's just, you know, a championship culture, which, by the way, the, the conversation before this is the opposite of that, um, where no one talks about how great they are. And then guys that you don't even expect to be good end up being much better than they've even promised that they would be. There's something about that championship culture that just, it just washes over everybody in it. Like Quinn Cook has now had some really good games in these playoffs. Last night he stepped up and knocked down three threes, huge threes, during the run in which they took the lead and Clay Thompson then went out. Cook ended up with 21 minutes. I believe Quinn Cook, who by the way, is a local, you know, went to DeMatha originally and then went, where did he go from DeMatha? Oak Hill? Is that where he went? I forget where he went from DeMatha when he transferred from DeMatha. It was DeMatha, right? I'll never forget being at a Maryland-Duke game uh, in College Park and being back um, behind the scenes with Scott and with a couple of other people and Quinn Cook sitting there and all the Maryland people are hoping he's waiting for Turgeon to come out of the locker room, but he's waiting. Yeah. he was waiting for Krzyzewski to come out of the it, locker it was, room. It was DeMatha to Oak Yeah, it was DeMatha to Oak Hill. Okay, good. Um, the 21 minutes for him... Uh, the most he's had in the postseason, the nine points, also a playoff high. But it's it's so interesting to watch, you know, a Jarebko, a McKinney, a Bogut, you know. So with Looney hurt, Bogut comes in and gets more minutes than he's gotten in a while. All right, first action didn't play at all in Game One of the series. He gets seven minutes and he gets three. Basically, there are three alley-oops and maybe one one tip-in, but six points in seven minutes for Bogut. You know, he's ready to go. There's an aggressiveness, a confidence that guys on a championship team with championship culture have that's really interesting. You know, how the Patriot guys that you had never heard of would step up, you know, out of nowhere. Like, you know, who had heard of Chris Hogan before he started just lighting people up? It's like there's something about that culture. And so it, it was. It was an impressive performance. I just didn't view it in the moment as like the all-time championship culture win. It, it's cool to see everybody ready to play and everybody produce because they're around all that greatness. I thought a big part of this game was that Toronto just missed so many open looks. Golden State's defense was much better in Game 2 than it was in Game 1. There's no doubt about that. But Toronto helped out by shooting poorly. They shot 37% from the floor. And from behind the arc, they, had, they were 11 of 38, which is 29%. And a lot of those were some open looks off of good passing. You know, some of them were contested, but Van Vliet last night had some open looks, had some others that were contested, but he was two for eight from behind the arc. Uh, you know, uh, Gasol missed both of his looks, which were wide open looks. Leonard did not have, his numbers were great, 34 and 14. Um, he had a couple of brutal turnovers on really bad possessions. I actually think that while Kawhi Leonard's been the star of these of these playoffs, I think he is hurt, A, but B, I think he's gotten 
a little bit too comfortable with playing some ISO uh, too early, settling for uh, for an ISO possession with 15 seconds on the clock and then whittling it down to where he gets something that's rough or he turns it, turns it over. He had five turnovers in the game last night. The, Toronto's much better when the ball's moving or if Leonard attacks, draws the double, and gets the ball moving. When he's out you know, near half court, is the double, he's trying to get the double to relax He's got to move that ball. He's got to get rid of it faster. I didn't think he did that well last night. I mean, he had, again, 34 and 14, and I'm calling it an off night. In fact, I would say the first two games of this series have not been great games for Kawhi Leonard. He's getting to the free throw line, which he did again last night, and he made he was 16 for 16. And some of his offensive rebounds were so great. I mean, this is where he's, you know, so underrated, is essentially creating new possessions for his team. Um, but I thought that Toronto helped out a lot. I think they helped out with the turnovers. They had 15. Some of them were certainly could have been avoided, especially the Leonard turnovers. I thought Lowry had it going early, but the foul trouble really hurt, and then he fouled out late. Obviously, the run at the end of the first half when Golden State had a 12, uh, I'm sorry, Toronto had a 12 point first half lead, and then they go in up five was huge for Golden State because the Warriors came out with a with a building that was, uh, you know, the start of the third quarter, everybody's still getting concessions, and that building was hopping in the first half. And Golden State seemed to take advantage of that. Toronto seemed a little bit down, and they went on an incredible 18 0 run, where again, Toronto was missing shots, open shots. Like that run could have been much different if they had knocked down some of the shots that they've knocked down in recent games against Milwaukee and against Golden State in game one. Steve Kerr took a lot of, you know, put a lot of the credit uh, or gave a lot of the credit to his team's defense, which was absolutely much better than it was in game one. But I didn't think that it was like great defense because I think Toronto just missed some shots that they can make. Um, Lastly, the, the, the thing uh, that happened at the end of the game, two things that happened at the end of the game, actually. One was that um, Toronto went to a box and one defense on Steph Curry. You just don't see that in the NBA very much. Box and one is like high school and some college. You know, when you've got one star and you guard him fiercely, and they did with Van Vliet, and then the other four guys essentially play like a 2-2 zone. All right, a box. And it worked. And it worked. And I don't know if anybody, I didn't hear anybody say this last night. This is my view and the view of a couple of coaches that I was texting with last night. Steve Kerr didn't know what to do against the box and one. Had no idea. Which, by the way, you know, a lot of the college stuff and high school stuff defensively, the pro coaches aren't used to it. I'm not saying that Steve Kerr doesn't know how to beat a box and one, but he didn't last night or they didn't execute beating a box and one multiple things they could have done that they didn't first of all the middle of the of the the lane out to the free throw lines wide open they never had anybody in that spot secondly you could use a screener on curry and the screener drops to that middle spot you overload one side and then it's essentially three on two there are a lot of things you could have done they could have used curry as a screener didn't do any of those things they were confused by the box and one in fact curry called it i think afterwards a junk defense didn't even really know, maybe he knew what it was, and that was just his description of it, but they did not handle the box and one, and they went scoreless. 
over a period of time in the fourth quarter, because of that switch to the box and one, which was really the reason. The reason, by the way, that Nick Nurse did it is because they were getting killed backdoor. They were getting killed to the rim um, on on using uh, many times Curry as the screener, which was really interesting to watch. But they scored on a, a bogut bucket with 539 left to take a 106-94 lead. Their next shot was the Iguodala shot with seven seconds to go that, that went in. They went over five minutes without scoring. And Toronto had multiple chances, multiple chances. They had a couple of threes go in and out. And they had it down to two on the Danny Green um, you know, I think Leonard missed a shot. Siakam got a rebound, kicked it to Green. Green knocked it down with 26.9 seconds left. And that's the last thing. There are two, two, two more things. Number one, I had no problem with Iguodala shooting the shot when he shot it with the amount of time that was left in the shot clock. That was a wide open shot by a big game player, and he knocked it down. I, I heard Van Gundy screaming, you can't take that shot there. Well, then you potentially are either going to let the clock run out or get something much worse and Toronto still had a timeout left. Uh, that that shot was fine by me. Um, if I were Toronto in that situation, when Danny Green made that three, I would have fouled. And Nick Nurse said they were trying to foul, but when Curry had the ball, they didn't want to foul. They wanted to trap, try to force the turnover, which they nearly did. They should have fouled Draymond when he had it early in the shot clock. I thought you know a two-second, two-and-a-half-second d- differential in the shot clock was just uh, too much. Uh, or too close. You know, they could take that shot super late. You could rebound it and you, yeah, you get to advance it, you know, but you're going to have a second and a half or two seconds left and you're going to get a shot to either tie or potentially win the game, which is all you asked for. I would have extended the game there. If there's a five second, six second shot clock differential, fine, play it out. Um, I, and I know that the issue, Nick Nurse said, tough to, to foul Curry in that spot. You're right. Should have fouled Green. Immediately, Green had the ball near half court, and there were like 18 seconds left. Should have fouled Green, put him at the line, and extended the game. Uh, goes back to Golden State Wednesday night. Last night, by the way, was another. Um, I didn't didn't give it out. I, I gave it out in game one, but I did play it. I had Toronto last night. Um, it went to two and a half, and the public was on Golden State, and the public won last night. Uh, I have not seen, but I'm going to look it up right now. Uh, what the number is on Wednesday night. I was thinking five or five and a half. Very good guess. It's, it's exactly what it is. It's minus five and a half. Opened at five. It's at five and a half right now. I would imagine the public's going to be all over Golden State. The issues, uh, obviously, injury-wise, are Thompson and Looney. Um, boy, did Boogie Cousins step up and have a hell of a game last night. He really did. And who knows about Durant, but we've got a couple of days to figure it out. I'm assuming he's not going to play in this series. But then again... Um, you know, and right now, they probably, after winning last night, feel less pressure to rush him back. All right, quick word about Window Nation. All right, Window Nation's ready-to-kick-off summer uh, sale is continuing this week. Buy one, get one free. Window Nation's absolute best offer is back for one final week. Buy one window, get the second free. Buy two, get two free. Buy four, get four free. There is no limit. Plus, you'll get 0% interest for five full years. And there's more to this deal. 
Call today. You get a free in-home quote. You get a pair of tickets to Hershey Park while supplies last. Window Nation will come out to your home within 24 hours. They'll come out seven days a week, whatever is convenient for you, with exact pricing, not just an estimate. They're backed by Window Nation's A-plus Better Business Bureau rating. You're guaranteed the best value, or they'll pay you $250. But you've got to act fast. Window Nation's sizzling savings ends on Sunday. Call today. Buy one window, get one free. There is no limit. Plus, get 0% interest for five years and bonus tickets to Hershey Park. Call today, 866-90-NATION, or go to windownation.com. All right, we're going to bring in three guys in succession who cover the Redskins. They're on the beat. Tark El-Bashir for The Athletic. We're going to start with, and really what I want to do is from all three of them, is get a super early word on you know what they're hearing, what they're seeing. You know, we've talked about you know how training camp doesn't even reveal much. Preseason games, you know, rarely reveal much. But um, they're out there. They're getting the word. They're talking to coaches, and they're starting to learn things with veteran minicamp scheduled to begin tomorrow. So they get the veteran minicamp tomorrow, Wednesday, Thursday, and then the last set of OTAs after that. And we'll start with Tark. Tark of course now writing for the athletic covering the caps and the redskins for the athletic follow him on twitter at tark underscore uh, el bashir i want to start tark with just at this point you, you've been out there a lot recently what is the early word on what the coaches think of Dwayne haskins well what they are saying publicly is pretty consistent with what they are saying off to the side as well and they are impressed. They are impressed with his arm strength. Uh, they are impressed with uh, his personality and his energy and kind of how he has taken to his teammates. The early returns are really good. The one thing they are – I don't want to use the word concern, but the one thing where they have to see improvement here in the next little while is this going to be his grasp of the verbiage and – the, the offense itself. I mean, he has shown on the field that he can make NFL throws. He can make top-notch NFL throws where he has struggled a little bit, and that's coming from a no-huddle system at Ohio State, has been communicating the play from the sidelines to the huddle. Uh, and we saw this a couple times in OTAs last week on at least two occasions, by my memory. Um, he broke the huddle, they came to the line, and then – there were a lot of guys looking around like, wait a minute, it didn't make any sense. Uh, and the formation wasn't right, and Gruden had to stop, and they had to reset and then do it again. That happened a couple of times. Now, that's not abnormal. I mean, that's happened right. even with Kate Keenum. I mean, this is a new guy who's learning the offense, but I think the sense is that he's a little further behind Case, who's an NFL veteran, and that he's going to need to clean that up and, and, and catch up in that area real quick. What I was going to get to Keenum here in a moment. Um, do the players that you talk to and you talk to them about Haskins, do they feel the same way that the coaches do, that they're they're impressed as well and that he looks the part? Yes. I, I, I have talked to a number of offensive players who have uh, praised his arm strength, have praised his ability to make mature-type throws. And, and what I mean is, um, he he's throwing the ball with the with the um, not just the velocity but uh, kind of the anticipation of a guy who's been in the league for a little while. Um, there was one throw during one of the OTAs that was open to the media last week where on a go route uh, to Jeff Chesson, who's a, yeah. a special team standout, not not the best wide receiver on the team, obviously, 
Uh, he made a great throw um, down the sidelines, went right through his fingertips. I talked to Chris Thompson about that throw uh, right after, and I said, well, you know, what were you thinking when you saw that? He said, oh, my God, <laughs> and in a good way. He said, that's the kind of throw, and he talked about not just you know, recognizing that Chesson had some space there and that was a, a smart throw to make. He said it was the way the ball comes down. Um, he said it comes down like uh, with a little bit of spiral. It, it doesn't float. And he said those are the kind of throws that you typically see from a guy who's been in the league for a little bit, um, not from a guy who's, you know, kind of wide-eyed a little bit and trying to, and taking everything in. He, he likes them. Vernon uh, uh, Davis told me he likes them. I mean, there, there are a lot of guys. What I want to ask, Kevin, I want to talk to some defensive guys, and I haven't had the chance yet because they kind of all come off the field right. at the same time. But we're going to have some more access this week. I want to ask some defensive guys what they see when they line up across from Haskins. You know, is he looking guys off? You know, does he look confident and in control? Um, you know, because what I see from the sideline is totally different than what Landon Collins sees from the, um, from the bird I see. So, you alluded to Keenum already, but what's the early word on what the coaches think of Keenum? They think that he's where he should be. Um, you know, in, in terms of uh, understanding the offense, you know, he, he arrived a lot sooner, um, a lot earlier than Haskins did. So he had a really big leg up in terms of the playbook and, um, you know, getting comfortable with his surroundings, his teammates, uh, you know, the, the coaching, I mean, just everything. He, he had a, you know, a couple months head start, and um, he's been good. He's been good. And my sense, Kevin, is that they want to see Haskins push ahead, but right now it's, it's, it's way too early for them to, uh, to really make a call. And I think everyone in that building really wants one of those two guys. And I'm totally throwing Colt McCoy out right now because we haven't seen him on the field. We don't know where he is at health-wise. Uh, we saw him working off to the side. But they really want this quarterback uh, decision between Haskins and Keenum to be a no-brainer. They really don't want it to come down to, oh, man, uh, <laughs> you know, they were – it was really tight in training camp. It was tight in the preseason. What are we going to do? Are we going to go for it now with, with Case, or are we going to hand it over to Haskins knowing there's going to be some growing pains? They want it to be – obvious to the players, to the coaches, to the fans, that they want it to be a slam dunk. Here's a guy. He won the job fair and square. Here are the keys. Go get him. All right. Your June 3rd guess, when does Haskins start his first game? My feeling is, and without, without giving a specific game, I think it's going to be a few games into the season. I think history dictates that first-rounders start at some point in uh, their first season. Yeah. And I think that's, that's going to be the case with Haskins. I do think that that really tough schedule at the start is going to maybe uh, uh, lend itself to, to starting a veteran. And I, I think that at some point in the first half of the season, the keys are going to be handed over to Haskins. I, I don't, based on what I see now, and again, you said June 3rd, it's really early. Maybe things really start to click uh, at some point down in Richmond. But I would say right now, Keenum has a slight advantage due to the experience. And I think he gets the, the nod week one. And I think Haskins takes over, takes over the um, – grabs the keys at some point before we get to the bye week. What were the first impressions, Tark, of Montez Sweat? <laughs> he looks like RoboCop. I mean, <laughs> let me tell you, there are, there are a handful of guys in pro sports 
and I've done this for a couple of decades now, when they walk next to you, you go, that's not normal. Right. That size, that definition, and then when you see them on the field, you know, Cam Newton's one of those guys. The first time Cam Newton walked by me in his full pad, I was like, what is that? His his ankles are as wide as most guys, you know, like, thighs. Right. It just didn't look. You're just in awe of of their size. Sweat is like that. The first time he walked by me, and this was just in a jersey and a helmet, he walked by me. I was like, oh, my God. When they say 6'6", 260, like, that's that's spot on. And then you see him out there. He hasn't gone out there against Trent Williams yet. I haven't seen him much against Morgan Moses. But when he's been going out there against the guys who are going to be battling for backup jobs, it almost looks like it's not fair. Um, you, you can tell that he's. I wouldn't say frustrated, but you can tell he really wants to show what he can do, but they're kind of after the Reuben um, Foster injury. They want things to be three-quarter, not quite, you know, as as uh, three-quarter speed. They don't want to be quite as physical as it was on that first day. Um, but once the pads go on, I think you're going to see a dude who has a natural edge to him. He looks like one of those guys who's not going to be just content to drag the quarterback down. He wants to spike the quarterback off the turf. I mean, like, he is uh, – you you want to hesitate. He's a beast athletically. Yeah, you you just don't want to blow anyone up before you see them in pads, but I think he's going to be a lot of fun uh, uh, for Redskins fans. They're they're going to enjoy this guy. I I hope – He's a good player. I I mean, I have as much – I'm as excited about seeing him as anybody else next year in this roster – um, you know, the other thing I, I think that stands out too is his length, like his arm length for for an outside linebacker and pass rusher. Yeah, is impressive. What we what we don't know yet, and we we're not going to find out till they start to play regular season games. Is does he have the technique? Does he have the moves? You know, to beat consistently, you know, left and right tackles in the NFL. And we're not going to know that until the game's counting and, and he's game planned for potentially. But it would be nice if the Redskins had a pass rusher that the opponent legitimately had to game plan for. And, you know, it, it does other things too. I mean, if you're game planning for Montez Sweat, that means, Kerrigan. you know, maybe, yeah, maybe you're leaving some opportunities on the field for Ryan Kerrigan, who, you know, he's getting up there. He's on the wrong side of 30, but he can still play. Yeah. And he's got some ability. He's looked good in these OTAs to me. So I think having the two of them on opposite sides is going to make it a pick your poison type situation. But, but you're exactly right. I mean, being a good pass rusher in the NFL is about a sophistication of moves and hand placement and strength and leverage. There's things that have to be learned, and it's going to be interesting to see where exactly Montez is in terms of the intricacies of, of playing that position. But from a, phys- from a physical standpoint, he's a freak. And if, if, he's, if he's a good learner, man, I, I think he could be a good, really, really good player. Double-digit sack guy, no doubt. All right, two more. Um, the first is this. Who's the other safety opposite Landon Collins when we get to opening day in Philly? You know, I, I think it's going to have to be Monte Nicholson. Um, I, I think that's who they want it to be. Uh, it seems like his legal jeopardy, I mean, you know, the charges from his from his fight were have been thrown out. Um, uh, so I, I think in, in legal terms, he's in the clear. But what we haven't really gotten a straight answer on, and I have inquired uh, with both the Redskins and the NFL, is does he face anything from the league? It doesn't seem that way. It doesn't feel that way. I, I feel like it's been a couple of weeks since those charges were dropped. If there was something coming, we would have heard already, um, I think. 
Monte's ability to run, uh, yeah. I think, makes him a very good complement to Landon, who is a cerebral player, but also a tough player. And, um, you know, he's physical, but you're going to need a guy who can get out there in coverage with some faster players. And, and I'll tell you, Monte, he's one of the fastest guys on the field at all times. The question is, is he over whatever happened to him last year? And we have never really gotten a clear indication as to what happened to him last year. He started out as a starter. He was trying to build on a strong rookie season. And then ha-ha, Clinton Dick showed up. And, you know, that wasn't by accident. That's because the coaches didn't believe in what he was doing. Yeah, exactly. Um, so- it's, it's like the off-the-field stuff, you know, threw a wrinkle into something that already had a wrinkle in it, which is – they made a trade yeah. mid-season because, for whatever reason, they didn't love what they were seeing, or at least someone didn't love what they were seeing. Um, and I, I'm with you. I mean, I've I've been a, fa- a fan of his, you know, his closing speed, his range. He is a free safety that can run and close, and I think he'd make a great compliment for for Collins. But something in the back of my mind, Tark, just tells me. The coaches maybe don't feel the same way, or or they're they're lukewarm on him for some reason. You know, I I think they want to see him succeed, but I think he's one of those guys where they need to see it. I, yeah. like they they physically need to see it here in these next few months. You know, he had some concussion issues, right. and I can tell you, he's still one of the few guys on the field that even in practice he wears sunglasses and he wears a visor with some tint on it. And you know, one of the symptoms of concussion. Yes. And, Light and you know sensitivity. dealing with his light sensitivity, and, yeah. I, and I wonder if you know he's still. I, I I think I mean clearly he's been cleared. This is why he's in, and you know he can be on the field, but is he still a little reticent about getting banged in the head again? Is there is this something that's not quite a hundred percent? I wonder. And um, we tried to talk to him at the last open session, and um, he escaped. <laughs> so yeah. we're going to try again this week. All we right, have three opportunities. Last one, and I'll let you run, and I appreciate the time. Do you have an early guess on a player that will surprise, have a bigger impact than maybe most fans are even thinking about at this point? It's early. I know, that's, but it's, it's, it's a yeah. super early guess. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm kind of... <sighs> what about Bostic? Is he going to start? No, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I, I don't think he is. I don't think he has... Um, risen to the level of starter okay. yet. I think they want Mason Foster and Sean Dion Hamilton to be your two inside guys. I was going to go with Terry McLaurin. I, I feel like the connection, especially once Haskins gets on the field, and I think he's going to be on the field in a big way as a starter at some point early on in the season. They had a great connection at OSU. I, I, I feel like from what I have seen from him, he's going to have the ability to make plays as a wide receiver. He's going to be a really good special teamer. Um, I, I'm I'm going to go with him. I, I think people have some expectations, but I think he's going to exceed them this year as a rookie. This was great. I love catching up with you as always. Uh, follow Tark on Twitter at Tark underscore El Bashir. He writes for the Athletics. Subscribe to that so you can read him and everybody else every day. Thanks, Tark, so much for your time. Appreciate it. Anytime, Kevin. All right, from Tark El-Bashir, we go to Michael Phillips with the Richmond Times-Dispatch. He covers the Redskins um, for the Richmond Times-Dispatch. You can follow Michael on Twitter, at Michael P-R-T-D. And Michael is a good follow on Twitter and does a great job covering the team. and And I enjoy Michael, and I'm telling you this because I think that you are... 
see, I, I love guys that really are really good reporters. That's you're that. But I also don't mind in this day and age, and I know that it moves maybe away from the way it was in 1955. But I like how you get emotional in your writing and in the media work outside of print that you do because you you will call it like it is and not be afraid to you're not afraid to be critical so i've, I've always enjoyed that about you so with that aside and you don't have to answer to that i want to just go through i, I, I take that as a great compliment it I is tarik tarik scott hockey is a backup plan i, I probably need <laughs> something out somewhere along the way no, no you won't um <laughs> all right uh let's rip through a couple of things uh, and i asked tarik some of these questions as well but we'll start with this what is the word you're hearing, the super early word at this point, on what everybody out in Ashburn thinks of Haskins, coaches, players, etc.? I think the word has been cautiously optimistic. Uh, I think people are very impressed by the raw skills, let's say, the speed he puts on the ball, the velocity, the arc. Uh, you know, decision-making is not 100% there yet. Everybody expected that. He's got a lot to learn. He's a rookie quarterback who played one year of college football. Um, but I think the skeptics in the building um, are saying, okay, there, there's something we can work with here. This is not a hopeless cause. Um, what do you think the feeling on Keenum is right now? I think Keenum is exactly who they thought he would be. I, I think the big concern there is what's he going to do when there's injuries on the offensive line? What's he going to do when – he does not have a roster as good as he had in Minnesota. That, that's a very big issue here. His success, his lone NFL success, was with a stacked roster. And this is not a stacked roster. You know, I, you got Adrian Peterson and some other guys. You know, a wide receiver, there's nobody who'd say this guy is a great threat. Um, so I, I think Jay still thinks he's a, he's a good option to start. I, I think they're moving forward as though he's going to start. Um, I, I don't know that anybody's sold that he is the answer in and of himself um but you know when it comes to jay gruden you know and and you follow this stuff closely too do you think jay was comfortable with keenum all along and do you think that that's been backed up in his mind through just the first month of getting to know him and having keenum you know get to know jay and, and jay's offense i think it's the personality type jay really likes a guy who will you know, get in there and talk about the plays and the X's and O's and what he likes and you know, bring it out to the practice field. I'll, I'll say this, I've, I've really noticed, and, and, you know, we can't go into specifics, of course, or, or else they'd have to ban me from practices, but it feels like the, the very tiny bit we've seen, and, and we have to emphasize how little we've seen, it, there have been some drills and some plays that they've run where I'd say, they haven't run that before. They haven't run those concepts before. I, I think Jay's been somewhat innovative with the offense here this offseason and the way he's drawing it up. I don't know if that's a comfort level with Case. Maybe the desperation that he's got to do something with this group to try to push him over the playoff hump here. But whatever it is, I, I get the sense we're going to see more and more varied concepts than we have in past years from this offense. I think Kim's at least a part of that. All right, now you've piqued my interest um, because <laughs> because I – it's funny because I told this story, I don't know, a week ago, maybe two weeks ago, but um, Griffin's first minicamp, rookie minicamp, um, I remember that day very well, and I remember one of the things that I observed, and, and not everybody, as you know, that, that writes about professional football or covers the Redskins, not everybody is a big college football fan, and they don't spend as much time. College football, to me, I, I love Saturdays as much as I love Sundays, but... 
Um, Mike and Kyle uh, had Griffin lined up in the pistol formation at in that first minicamp, and they were running, you know, some read option stuff and even some triple option stuff. And I made that observation, and I said, "Wow, I mean, that's not that's not shotgun, you know, sort of read option style offense. That's the pistol. He's got a running back, you know, directly behind him. That's what Nevada and Kaepernick runs. And the only reason I knew that is because Nevada had played Maryland in a bowl game with Kaepernick as the quarterback. So I'd become, you know, somewhat familiar with Chris Salt's offense at Nevada. You know, I mentioned it on the air, and I did hear from somebody. Um, but I'm not going to mention who or how it came about, but they, they heard that I was describing that they were in the pistol formation and they were running, you know, they were running Griffin in some read option style stuff and triple option stuff. And I, I made the comment at the time, Michael, I said, you know, I'm sure they're just going to do it for red zone stuff like Cam Newton had done the year before. You know, I had no idea that this was going to be, you know, a significant part of their offense from, you know, from the 20 to the 20 also. But um, I did hear from somebody and they weren't overly critical, but they just said, did you mention the following? And I said, I did. And they said, oh, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we should have probably, you know, we should have probably spoken to everybody out there about some of the stuff they were seeing at minicamp. But anyway, what can you tell us about what you saw <laughs> with new concepts and varied concepts from Jay Gruden? That Nevada line I didn't get in trouble. I, I, I didn't get in trouble, by the way, just so you know. No, I'm taking notes on this Nevada thing. This is great. Next time I'm watching the Beefo Brady's ball on a Tuesday night, I'm getting hassled by my wife. I'm, well, this is important research. Who knows when this stuff's going to come up in the Yeah, game. it was the uh, it was the it was the Boise Bowl, wasn't it? It was the one on Blue Turf when they played uh, Nevada in Boise, right, Aaron? Sounds right. It's yeah, either Boise or so. San Francisco. Famous Idaho Potato yeah. Bowl. Yeah, I think that's what it was. <laughs> um, I, I would say what's interesting to me is to to the extent that there's maybe more quarterback movement than there has been in the past would be that I, I think that would tilt the scales towards uh, Haskins. I, I think the Haskins right now, if you watch Jay running him through the drills and the things they're focusing on and just all the way on down O'Connell, Kavanaugh, all those guys, the way they're coaching him and the way they're drilling him, they really want him to focus on making good decisions from the pocket. They, they kind of want to instill that from day one. I don't know if that means they exclusively view him as a pocket passer. I, I, I don't think they're narrow-minded or anything like that. But I, I do get the sense that, that with Haskins, they really want to emphasize during training camp, during these preseason games, you don't run at the first sign of trouble. Stay in the pocket. See what you can make. See if you can step into a good throw. So I, I think that's the, the fundamental emphasis with Haskins. And then anything else would be you know trying to get a little bit more juice out of Keenum. You know, trying to see if you can use his smarts and his skill set to buy you a little bit more than you'd get otherwise because he doesn't have Stephon Diggs running down the field. He doesn't have those weapons he had in Minnesota. So I think you're going to have to be a little bit more creative to get his best out of him. Is Will they – is it your guess that when Haskins begins to play that he will be in the shotgun much more than under center? You know, I, I would say too early to, to speculate on that. I, I think that's, you know, I, I don't think that's an unfair assumption to make. I don't know that I've seen anything that will back that up or, you know, that I, I have seen anything so far to back that up other than 
that's probably the logical way to do it, but I, I would say that's not an educated opinion at this point. I would say at this point you didn't really share with me any of the new concepts that you've seen out there for the most <laughs> part, and that's and that's fine. Um, here, here's a. This is obviously just an early guess. No one's holding you to it on June third. When do you think Haskins starts his first game? I think he starts his first game this season, but not week one. It, you know, if I were setting it over under, it'd probably be in the the six six and a half range somewhere in there. Uh, I, I think that the there's so much outside noise about need to be patient with this kid. And I, I think that's being heated. And I think that will be thrown out the window after a three-game losing streak and the overreactions that come with it. Um, but I, I do think they're going to they're gonna start with Keenum, or, or they're going to make every effort to start with Keenum, I should say. Um, but I, I think it's inevitable that we see the kid at some point this year. Montez Sweat, early impressions from the coaches, from players, from everybody out there during OTAs and uh, you know, with the veteran minicamp coming up have been what? Yeah, so you start with the positive. He, he's insane. He, he's going to be an instant impact guy from day one. Uh, the negative is he was handling Eric Flowers the other day when we were out there. And, you know, small sample size. These guys go at it every day. We only get to watch once a week. But, boy, Sweat was handling his business. I, Flowers had no chance against him. It was it was a big-time mismatch. So uh, if, if we celebrate Sweat, and, and we should, and, and he's looked great so far, uh, I think you got to look on the flip side of that as well, which is, oh boy, that's a guy they were counting on to be a starter this year, and uh, yikes, he did not look good against Montez Sweat. Um, let's go back to offense here for a moment. Um, who are the receivers and who are the running backs? Like I'm talking about the significant bulk of snaps, week one, go to whom at each position? Yeah, and you know, until we see Darius guys on a football field, I right. you know I've always been one of those guys. I I don't believe anybody's timetables um, when when they give them to you, and so I I don't believe all this talk of oh he's going to show up at training camp and he's he's going to be just like he was. Um, I need to see that first. So until I see that, that's this is an Adrian Peterson production here. He's the guy you've got to go with. He's the guy you got to give the carries to. Obviously, love same boat. He's not going to start the season. Maybe pub list. You know wh- whatever it is they do with him. Um, but right now, Peterson's your guy running back. Uh, you know, the, Josh Doxson looked good the other day. I've, I've seen him look good in off-season practices before, so I'm, I'm not starting any kind of bandwagon movement here. But, uh, you know, he'll get the opportunity to be out there to make some plays early in the year. I think how he uh, adapts with Keenum and with Haskins and, and what he can do for those guys, uh, you know, if he's able to give them a good target in training camp, if he's able to give them – some big catches in the preseason. I, I think he'll earn some looks in the regular season. Uh, you know, it, it's good for him starting with two fresh quarterbacks. Uh, he's still got Jay in the building, obviously. Jay knows what, what he's done. But, uh, you know, those two quarterbacks don't have a past history with him. So to the extent that Doxing can get right, I think the opportunities will be there for him. Uh, but, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see uh, McLaren at some point, too. I, I think he's uh, he's got the chance to be an impact guy. And I think what he does on special teams will keep him on the game day roster from week one. I get the sense that Jay Gruden believes there's no drop-off between Jamison Crowder and Trey Quinn. Do you agree with that? Yeah, and that's a little bit scary because I, I think Jamison Crowder is a little bit underrated. I, I think Quinn's a great player. I, I think he's an NFL-caliber guy, but I, I think they're going to really start to appreciate what Jamison Crowder brought to the table in about week two here. So you disagree with the way Jay you, – you agree with me that Jay feels that way, but you don't feel that way. 
I agree on both counts, yes. I, I think Jay's ready to just keep running his offense with, with Quinn. And I'll say this for Jay, he's weathered a lot of personnel changes here, and, and one consistent, you'd say, would be his ability to get that short passing game production. No matter who the quarterback has been, no matter who the receivers have been, he has traditionally drawn up concepts and plays that work there. Uh, I'm also not saying they should have re-signed Crowder. Obviously, they didn't have the money for that. That wasn't going to happen. Um, I think Crowder was a really good football player, but if there's anybody who can overcome it, anybody who is deserved to have the benefit of the doubt here as far as that confidence, it probably is Jay. Do you believe, that, that, like Tarek does, that they'd like Monte Nicholson to be the other safety opposite Collins? I think that's probably the team's preference right now, yeah, based on what I've seen. I, I've, I've always gotten the sense that there's not a whole lot of trust on DeShazer Everett. I, I don't know why that is necessarily. I haven't really dug deep into that or talked to those those people. I, one of the things is this is the week we get to talk to assistant coaches, which is always one of the treats of the season because – you know, those guys have in-depth knowledge that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited to hear what they have to say. But I've always gotten the sense that they don't fully trust DeShays or Everett. I, I don't know why that is necessarily, um, other than to say that, yeah, I think they're trying to get Nicholson into that starting spot. All right. Um, just so you know, uh, Maryland won that bowl game. It was the Humanitarian Bowl. Um, in, in Boise, they beat Nevada 42-35. to Darrell Scott had 174 yards and just 14 carries. And Kaepernick threw for 370 in the game, 24-47, three touchdowns, but had two picks in the game. Uh, they were in the pistol pretty much the entire game, <laughs> which was my introduction to the pistol, which was – it's funny, that was in, tw- in 2008, so it took four years for it to get to the NFL after Chris Salt had been running it at Nevada um, for, at that point, I think, a few years. Um, it's always great to catch up with you. Thank you so much, Michael. Follow Michael on Twitter, at MichaelPRTD. I'll talk to you soon. Yes, sir. All right. Uh, we go from Tark El Bashir to Michael Phillips to John Kime, who, of course, covers the team for ESPN. Follow John on Twitter at John underscore Kime. John also has a podcast, the John Kime Report. You can get that any way you get a podcast, uh, same way you get mine as well. Um, John's had some really good shows uh, here. Uh, recently. Um, I I wanted to just, and I'll finish up with you because um, you've also written here uh, in the last few days about some of this stuff, but I want to start with Haskins and just get a sense from you. You know, we've had so many of these conversations over the years on the air and off the air, and we both, you know, you definitely have a sense of what they're saying out there. You know, publicly we know, but also, you know, behind the scenes. What's the early word right now on what the organization, the coaches in particular, what they're, what they think of Haskins so far. Um, boy, and it, there, there's a few things there, Kevin. And, um, I think the, the things that I've always heard, excuse me, consistently is about the upside that he has. And I think one of the things that you, that you hear, because one of the fears is always will they will the organization push him onto the field before he's ready? And it, as of right now, I don't think that that's going to happen. And that may be a naive opinion, because as we know, what your plan is now may change in September, given you know the season's actually starting, and and your thoughts might change. It's easier to preach patience now. But I think 
so what you hear is that there are people who you know know the ownership well and um, are in there that feel like they're going to let the coaches develop him at his pace. I think the key with that, though, is depending on how well Haskins plays in the summer and then what the early record is um, if if a Case Keenum or Colt McCoy is starting. So, um, But what you do here is, um, you know, the arm talent. I, I think the arm talent jumps out to a lot of people, and he made a couple of throws last week that I think that you can look at and say, haven't seen that kind of throw here in a while. Um, and so I think that jumps out, and I think there have been a couple times where you've heard Jay Gruden on the field praise him for a decision he's made where, you know, um, I think it was more um, – in sync with what the coach would have wanted in that situation. So, you know, I do, I also think that there's still a lot for him to learn and they know that, which is why I go back to the patience. And I, I apologize for a long winded answer, but I think this is a very nuanced situation. And, um, you know, again, I think right now in June, whatever we're at, it's easy to preach patience. And I think that's what they're trying to do right now. And the other thing, Kevin, that you hear is, you know, they've learned from the Robert Griffin III situation. And not so much that he played too fast, but that what was given to him so soon. And I think they want to slow play this one if they can. And I don't think they're necessarily the same. They're not, the, you can't, it's hard to compare the two, but, but that's, you know, the, it's a high-profile first-round pick, and he's the first one since then. You know, it's an interesting dilemma. I mean, you know, you said, you know, you don't want to be naive. I think, you know, at this point, there's no naivete to any of this stuff because there's so many potential factors, but we don't know right. if people have grown like the owner and learned from previous right. mistakes. So it's hard to project all that, but it's an interesting dilemma no matter how you, you, you view it for Jay Gruden this year. You know, only one coach, and I and I I talked about this on Friday. Only one coach over the last decades gotten a fifth season after four straight non-playoff seasons, and that was Jeff Fisher. And perhaps he got that fifth season because they were in the midst of a move to L.A. and they had a lot of stuff right. going on for you know moving from St. Louis to L.A. Um, and he got fired in that fifth season. So Jay Gruden's dilemma is interesting because is it best? First of all, and I've said this, and I don't know how you feel about it. I don't know if Jay would lose it. You know, I'm sure Jay would love to continue to make the money he's making and be a head coach. And I'm not suggesting that he just wants to bail if things don't go well. But I always think about Jay go along to get along. And if it doesn't work out, he'll go be an OC somewhere and be fine with it. But I'm wondering what you think is his best path for long term employment in Washington. Is it. Going nine and seven and potentially eking out, you know, a six seed or a five seed wild card with Case Keenum, or is it developing Dwayne Haskins and showing some progress towards, you know, the end of the season with some momentum going into next year? Which of those two scenarios <laughs> is better for for Gruden? <laughs> Honestly, Kevin, I don't know because here's the thing. If if you're nine and seven and Dwayne Haskins doesn't develop, where are you at as an organization? I don't think that that's necessarily, you know, if that's the ceiling here, is that really that good? If and I think even in that scenario, it's going to be okay. That's fine. But what does the future look like? And where is Haskins at in his development? Because that really ultimately is what's going to matter. I think a nine and seven record with Case Keenum is that really going to excite people? Um, 
you know, I, I'd rather, I, you know, I think you'd be probably better off going eight and eight if Haskins is playing really well, you know, just because that's the guy that you need going forward if you want to elevate this franchise. And, um, you know, I also think like if you get, I just, I don't see a scenario where it's where Case Keenum's playing every game, especially with a nine and seven record. Right? It would be hard for me to see that. Um, because I just assume that at some point Haskins will play this year. Right. But, uh, you know, you need to make the playoffs. But I still think, like, if, if you're hearing things behind the scenes about, like, you know, why like why aren't they playing Haskins? And, and again, where is he at in his development? Because they also have a guy on staff in Kevin O'Connell where you could say, listen, you know, Jay, Jay took this thing as far as you could go. And, you know, um, there are other guys here who are factors in, in – Haskins development, um, meaning O'Connell, Tim Rattay, that you could retain and, and, and make a change there. So I don't know that I think I think both scenarios are kind of playing with fire for Jay. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting, and you know, there's so much context to all of it. But you know, the eight and eight, yeah. the eight and eight with Haskins. If the context is he's really getting better, and he and Jay get along, you know, it'd be you know, even though it would be total, you know, pretty unique for Jay to get a fifth consecutive season with 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 missing the playoffs for right. four in a row. Um, but we just don't know how the owner um, will react. No, to we that. don't. And and so much of it is, you know, you. We can always look to that, you know, people are going to look to that Kansas City model with Alex Smith and Pat Mahomes, but they were coming off a 12-win season when they added Mahomes. There was no reason to go in with the rookie that year because you're going into that year thinking you got a shot at the Super Bowl. You know, here it's different. So I think um, that's why, like I said, it's like you, you can use that model as saying, hey, that's a great way for success, but it's not exactly an apples to apples here because – I think if you are Jay, you've got to worry about winning first and foremost. Um, and um, again, Haskins' development you know, has to be a major part of any discussion of Jay Gruden going forward here. All right, so you've sort of alluded to what your answer might be here. Or you've given indication with some of your discussion about the patience with him. But give me a guess right now. Nobody's going to hold you to it, but I'm just curious right now, if you had to wager on when he gets his first start, when would it be? Um, I'd look after that probably around that week. I kind of felt like the week six to eight range only because, uh, you know, and it's not so much to avoid all those teams early because you never know how schedules break. Of course, yes. Um, but I, but I do think like they legitimately feel like it'd be best for him to wait and um, to sit. And I think if you you know depending on how they come through that first five game stretch, if they're one and four, and Haskins is doing well enough, then you know you could I you know then I think you could see him in that time frame. And it's not it's not inconceivable to think that they could have a, 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 a right now on paper, a record that would be conducive to making a change. Um, you know, so I think then, I think that's why I would look around that range. Um, but, um, you know, I, I mean, I think the hard part with Haskins, Kevin, is to know exactly where he's at with everything. And I think, you know, this, this week, next week, and then, but mostly training camp, we'll get a really, really good feel for that to know, okay, you know what, maybe that's not realistic at this point because you still got to do X, Y, or Z. But I think just looking at it from a, you know, we know that first-round picks are typically going to play, 
and where's a chance where the earliest chance to me would be around that time frame. You know, I think the NFL did the Redskins a solid with their early home schedule, the Cowboys and the Bears in particular, and then the Patriots in that. You know, they're not going to have a ticket selling issue for those first three home games because of the because of the three teams that are coming in and their fan bases that will travel in a big way. So some of the pressure that could have been there, let's just say in mid to late August with, you know, ticket sales for the 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 first couple of home games being way down and Dan all of a sudden saying we need we need Haskins. We need him in that by that home opener. It may not exist there because you you'll have you'll have a, f- a pretty close to a filled park for the Cowboys, the Bears, and the Patriots being your first three home games. Not with Redskin and fans necessarily, a, but you know a 50-50 right. split. And that's a good point because that is a factor. And, and after last year with the home, the way the home attendance was, and there are a variety of reasons, but the bottom line is they need to regenerate some excitement in that stadium and just within the fan base and if you get to a point where, you know, just I think it's just even an overall excitement level, um, if you're stumbling around and it's one and four and you, you have been selling tickets because those are premium um, teams to come watch, but it's also going to be TV ratings too for them. You know, what's those have been going down. So, yeah. like, where's the le- where can you generate some level of excitement to get people to maintain interest in this team. And again, this is a, this is all what I'm saying is, you know, assuming a bad start, which I am not necessarily doing, but looking at early, you know, reasons why he might play earlier than they maybe would want given his experience level, because that is the number one thing you kept hearing before the draft, whether it was people here or elsewhere was when will he be ready to play? Could he be ready to help you in year one? Um, but those are reasons why he may play sooner than some people would want. Listen, we always hear this about most first-round picks. They'll be better from the city year, and then they go out there and they play pretty well or something, or at least they get their feet wet, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, how impressed is everybody out there with Montez Sweat? Oh goodness, um, it, you know it's funny. I, I I asked Ryan Kerrigan about this a couple weeks ago about like who he, you know, just when he met him physically, you know, what did he think? Is like he reminded him of Julius Peppers. Now that's obviously not on the field. That's just his his build and his, his physique. And when you see him, yes, that's who he reminds you of. And um, I think they kind of get excited about what, what he can do. And you can see it already. And the worst, the one thing, some of the positions, some positions are very, very, very hard to gauge at this time of the year. And I think anybody who's, you know, if you're a front seven guy, it can be very difficult because it's so dependent on the pads and going at a certain speed when you're in pads and, and all that, but what you see from Sweat already is the length and then the ability to, as Jay Gruden said, eat up a lot of ground fast. Because he does, you know, I think watching him run sometimes with the ball, and I saw this on film scouting, or scouting, I didn't scout, but watching him before the draft, um, you see the, the effort to get to the ball, and it's always there. And you see that on the practice field. And then there are times, Kevin, where you're watching him, get around the edge against a guy like Eric Flowers and, you know, people, you know, whatever people are going to laugh about that, but it's still an NFL tackle. And then the other sort thing of. that I saw, right, right. Um, the other thing I saw too was when he rushes inside on some of the games that they'll run with the linemen and his ability to get into the guards and, um, and drive them back and, and then have that length when you are driving them back 
to maybe bat down some passes, but I've seen that as well. So I think there's a, there's an, there's going to be some, I don't know about versatility, but he can help them in a few different ways, but he's an impress to me. He's the, the, you know, the rookie right now that stands out the most just because of the physique. And I think because he'll be in a position to make more of an immediate impact um, than a guy, than even Haskins clearly. I mean, unless Haskins plays great this summer. <laughs> I mean, listening to you know and reading everything that's going on, and you and I both have been around the block here and all this stuff, and know that you know OTAs are you know much less significant than even training camp is, and training camp results right. are pretty insignificant. But <laughs> my God, the the hype over Jimmy Moreland, a seventh round corner. Um, <laughs> I, it's I mean, are the coaches? A, believers so far that this guy can play in the league mostly what i hear is like you know they they like obviously they like what they've seen and they a lot of what they're seeing is stuff that confirms what they saw before the draft ball hawk always around the ball and um so that part doesn't surprise them but what i always hear from them is yeah he's got a chance and when they'll talk like that it's you know about his really his chance to make the roster you know so I don't think that they're sitting there going, oh, my God. You know, I think they knew what they had in him um, before the draft. They loved his attitude. We've seen that out there. You know, there are times where he's got some, you know, he'll have some issues, and that's one of the things that you always have to um, be careful about is you can write, like you can tweet out or something about an interception, and people extrapolate that to mean he's a great player. (laughs) He had an interception in practice. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, there, there are times. I mean, we've seen guys who have had a sack or two in a, in a game who maybe had an, a terrible game on the other 60 plays he played. And and I'm not saying that he's been terrible any other times, but you have to put it in context. These are a couple plays out of many, and but it confirms what they've seen, what they saw in film, what the player they believe they had. But I don't think they're jumping up and down saying this guy's going to start this year and do this, this, and this. I think they just look at it like, hey, I think we got a good pick here in the seventh round. This kid has a chance to come in and and you know and win a start and well, win a start. I just win a roster yeah, spot a roster and spot. then you go yeah, from there. Exactly. Yeah, because like you know, listen, he's not going to be. He's not better than Josh Norman, Fabian Moreau, or Quentin Dunbar right now. Okay, right. and I think you know somebody else brought this up the other day that Danny Johnson was the hot name throughout right. training camp and and you know, but I think Moreland's a little bit different here because he is always around that ball. I think that comes from preparation and, and brains and all that. But, yeah, I think you have to slow – I think we all have to slow the roll a little bit and, and, and for fans, put it in the proper context. You're talking about a couple plays that, you know, out of, out of many, and you're not seeing all the other ones. But he is a guy that I think that they legitimately like and feel can win a roster spot. And then, again, we go from there. I'm assuming – tell me if I'm wrong – that there aren't going to be any, you know, post-June 1 surprise releases, you know, whether it's Vernon Davis or Josh Norman or anything like that. No. Yeah. Um, Not expecting that. And I haven't expected that for a while. Yeah, so. exactly. Um, are they going to get hard knocks or not? I don't think so. Um, you know, first of all, I think Oakland, Oakland is just better um, – you know, as far as entertainment value, and there's part of me that says, well, if you want the Redskins, you may this would be the year because Gruden on the hot seat, Dwayne Haskins, um, and it is you know a, a franchise and there's always a lot going on behind the scenes or whatever. So 
So it's a good chance to get him. But I still would, and then, you know, maybe you can get the Raiders next year because they probably aren't going to do anything. But you don't know. And the Raiders right now are, are of primary entertainment value with, with all the guys that Jay Gruden named last week, Antonio Brown and Perfect. You know, you have John Gruden, for God's sake. And, you know, they, they are you know, they're you. kind of vagabonds. Yeah, so I, 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 I totally I agree with you. The, Ra- the Raiders are a more interesting national story, much yeah. more than the Redskins are. Much more, much more, much more. And, and that's, so, like, if you're looking at it like that, it's like, you know what, it's, there's going to be another year where the Redskins are interesting. But also, like, the other factor is, too, you know, HBO hasn't contacted the Redskins to set – like, you're going to have to do all sorts of um, – uh, setting things up for Richmond and, and just like with, you know, all sorts of, um, you know, all the technical stuff that you have to start preparing for, that's really not going on. So I don't think like I, last I was told, I think it was a week or so ago, I was told that it's like, or it didn't sound like there would be a decision for at least a few weeks. Um, so, you know, I think it may be hard to do them anyways, but um, I am, I I'm not expecting that, but All right. you know who knows. Last one, I'll let you run. Give me a player um, that you know maybe under the radar for most fans right now that you are you know a, a, a coach coach you know discussion that you've had where they're excited about somebody that that we we wouldn't necessarily think about. Is there anybody? Hmm. I don't know that there's anybody that jumps to that level. The two guys that. I mean, one, listen, Darius Geist doesn't count on that because he's on the radar. Yeah. But I think he's a guy that, like, when I've talked to some people there, that's, like, maybe, you know, because my first thought was he's going to have to ease into things and blah, blah, blah. That may not be the case. Okay, good. Um, and then, yeah, so, you know, I, I, but, you know, again, we'll know more in August because he's not out. We're not seeing him do things on the field right now, but but they are. They're seeing him. They know what he's been doing. And um, so there's a level of excitement that maybe he doesn't have to wait to like, you know, ease into a role throughout the season that he could have that right away. And then, you know, you hear things about other guys, but I don't know that anybody necessarily jumps out more than somebody else. John, thanks as always. Uh, good luck with the podcast. John underscore Kime on Twitter and listen to his podcast, which what you usually do, are you doing one a week? Is that it? Right, right now it's one a week. Okay. Sometimes, you know, the, the occasional two, and then training camp will be doing more. All right, Bram's helping him out with it. Um, the John Kime Report, anywhere you get a, a podcast. Um, so go listen to that. He's had some really good guests uh, recently. I will talk to you soon. Appreciate it, as always. Thanks, Kevin. All right, thanks to John uh, Kime um, for coming on, uh, and to Tarek and Michael Phillips as well. We'll do uh, J.P. Finley later on in the week. He'll jump on with me. Uh, maybe live in studio uh, on Friday. By the way, Brad Johnson, Redskins quarterback, Super Bowl winning quarterback in Tampa, he's going to be on the podcast on Wednesday. So we'll talk to Brad Johnson on Wednesday. Tommy will be in tomorrow. Quick word about Stamps.com. If you're a small business, listen closely. I've done all the research. Stamps.com is easy and it saves you money. It eliminates trips to the post office, saves you money with discounts that you can't even get at the post office. Stamps.com brings all of the amazing services of the U.S. Post Office right to your computer. Whether you're a small office sending invoices or you're an online shipper, uh, online seller shipping out products or even a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com handles it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24 hours a day, 7 days a week for any letter, any package, any class of mail, 
anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail is ready, just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it in a mailbox. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get $0.05 off every first-class stamp, but you get 40% off priority mail. It's a no-brainer. It saves you time and money. 700,000 small businesses are using Stamps.com today. Now, right now, my listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and use my code word KevinDC. Just type in K-E-V-I-N-D-C. That's Stamps.com, KevinDC. All right, what else from over the weekend? I, I... I didn't see the fight Saturday night, all right? I didn't see the stunner in, in the boxing world. That You know what? I, I, I was telling you this, Aaron, before the show. There was a, a period of time, um, you know, f- basically from when I was young into my early 30s to mid-30s, I loved boxing. And I just, over the last five, ten years, something like that. I've just dropped off the boxing grid, unless there's like a really compelling fight that you have to purchase. But I'll be honest with you, I had no idea that Anthony Joshua was fighting Andy Ruiz Jr. and that it became one of the biggest boxing upsets based on odds in the history of the sport. So I, I'm I'm there on, on Saturday night on, on Twitter reading about Andy Ruiz. Andy Ruiz he's a Mexican, um, and he knocked out Anthony Joshua in, in the seventh round. And by the way, the guy, somebody tweeted out that he looks like Butterbean, Pretty which much. he does, yep. which he does. But this was like a shocking upset. He was an 11 or 12 to 1 underdog. I mean, this is not in the Douglas over Tyson you know, uh, category of 42 to one, but an 11 to one underdog in a mono a mono sport is a big time underdog. And this dude knocked out Joshua. I, I don't have a lot to say about it. You're following boxing probably more than I right now. We can talk to Tommy about it. Um, but we've been one, we, I, I guess the heavyweight division now has been thrown upside down. It's the heavyweight division is actually. I'm not a huge boxing guy. I'll, I'll see the you know the big fights or whatever. But the heavyweight division is as exciting as I can remember it being. In well, a I've long I've time. watched Wilder fight a yeah, few times. Wilder Fury, Fury Joshua, and, and now this guy who you know probably can't fu- you know compete no. with these other guys. But again. It makes it exciting because now you want to see Wilder try to go up against this guy and see how quickly he can knock out this guy versus, you know, anybody else. So, which is more you can say than you can say about the heavyweight division in a really, really long time. Um, Ruiz, by the way, is the first ever heavyweight champion of Mexican descent. Um, he took the fight basically two months ago um, as a replacement, I believe, or on short notice. Yeah. And was a massive underdog, as I mentioned, yeah. anywhere from eleven to, to twelve um, to one. I've I've seen a lot of fourteens up to twenties, even depending on the book. Well, but but here's the other thing too, he fought on April twentieth, so it was a forty-two day turnaround between his last fight in this heavyweight challenge, and apparently it's like one of the top five shortest turnarounds between a fight and a championship challenge in boxing history. Uh, Anyway, um, 
I know that the Joshua Wilder fight was pretty much the next one, I think, on the calendar. That's what they were all hoping for. So this is a big blow to Wilder in particular, but maybe he'll fight Ruiz. Uh, Ruiz, you know... Wilder has a couple fights already lined up. I think he has someone... I don't know who he has. Then I think he might have the Fury, another Fury fight coming up at the be in 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, some of you, I'm sure, were following that, um, and I was not. Didn't even know it was going on on Saturday night. Um, the uh, John Allen, by the way, was one of the um, players ranked as the best players under 25 years old, 25 or under, in the NFL, which wasn't a surprise to me. Um, I, I'm, I, I've got big hopes that John Allen can turn into, you know, perhaps not Aaron Donald, um, perhaps not Fletcher Cox, but a player just below that level um, for a long um, period of time. Uh, you know, Gronkowski, there were some rumors flying over the weekend that he was unretiring and he was going to come back to the Patriots. He says that's totally uh, untrue. Uh, I know most of you don't care about the French Open, nor do I um, anymore. Again, I used to be a big tennis guy too, loved tennis. Um, but Serena got beaten. So did the number one female player in the world, Osaka. Um, she got beat as well. Um, so there you go on the women's side, if you were wondering about that or, or barely paying attention. I think we're headed towards Djokovic and Nadal again. Although I think Nadal and Federer would play a, uh, a semifinal um, match and the last thing I was going to mention to you, I, I did not watch the hockey game Saturday night. First, first of the Stanley Cup Finals games that I didn't watch. Boston um, won five to two. Um, I did see a movie over the weekend, and I'm going to make a recommendation. What movie did I tell you on Friday that I was going to try to see this week? Rocket Man. Rocket Man, the Elton John movie. I did go see it. I was very surprised about one aspect of it. It is part musical. Did you know that? I, I think I told you that when you were walking out the door that it was. I didn't hear you say that. Yeah. I didn't hear you say that. So that that was a surprise to me. I have not, not that I'm resistant to it because people I know tell me it's a phenomenal movie. I never saw La La Land. Did you? I have not seen it. Okay. I've heard it's really good. It, it doesn't, you know, jump off. The Page is a movie that I would love, but I've heard people say it's a phenomenal movie, and that's very much sort of a musical as well. I was very surprised. It's obviously a biography of Elton John. Um, I, I They get a lot uh, of this stuff you know, for the purposes of creative license out of order uh, in his career, which is fine, um, but it threw me off when all of a sudden some of these scenes broke out in musical format. But I thought it was really well done and incredibly well directed and well acted too. It was it was it was good. I think that Bohemian Rhapsody was better. The movie about Freddie Mercury and Queen I thought was better. But this was really good. Like if you're into that stuff, um, I would recommend this. I thought it was well done. You know, I didn't. I know a little bit about Elton John, not a lot, but uh, but enough. Um, I had no idea that his childhood was so effed up. He had, uh, you know, a, a, a disinterested father, um, basically, you know, uninvolved, a mother that was difficult. The grandmother was really the encouraging person because he didn't have many people encouraging him. But he was a child prodigy. 
as a piano player. He was a a prodigy at a very young age, discovered, you know, pushed through these music, you know, royal music groups in London. Um, and, and, uh, and he, you know, was, was a star when he came over here in 1970 for his first performance at the Troubadour in LA. But I, I, I liked the movie, so I would recommend, uh, that movie. I did watch a lot of the golf from over the weekend. Just said, you know, if you're, if you're wondering, I mean, I, Tiger, I thought played very well this weekend. Didn't score well until yesterday when he started off seven under through 12 holes. And Jack Nicholas actually said, as Tiger was seven under and had it to 11 under and was tied for third, Jack Nicholas said, Tiger could win this thing. And I'm thinking, the leaders haven't even teed off, and the leaders, somebody's going to be at 16, 17, 18 under to win this thing. Um, but he ended up having two bogeys coming in, shot 67. But he hit it great, and he looks ready for the U.S. Open, which isn't this coming weekend, but is the weekend following. And I know I've mentioned this before, but you get a West Coast U.S. Open at Pebble Beach. We're on the East Coast. You are watching this thing until, you know, 9.30, 10, 10.30 at night. If Tiger is in the running on Saturday and Sunday, you will see the biggest ratings, I think, in golf, you know, maybe in golf history. If he's at the top of that leaderboard on Saturday and Sunday night at the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach with an East Coast primetime audience, it will be massive. I'm hoping for that. Uh, that's it. Did you have anything? I got nothing. Nothing. I was nothing. T- I was told Liverpool won something this weekend. Um, yes, I, I saw some of the drunken revelry from that. They have it looked an, a lot of fun. They have an incredible fan base. Uh, all right, that's it. Enjoy the day, everybody. Tommy's in with me tomorrow. And again, Brad Johnson, former Skins quarterback, former Super Bowl winning quarterback with the Buccaneers. He will be with us on Wednesday.